Welcome back, everyone, once again. And I forgot to announce, but I want to give a big warm welcome to Mr. Dan Ovid, who is filling in for us today at the band. Uh, Stuart is on his way back from England, and the flights didn't all connect in time. And um, so Dan has stepped in, so it's him and Jack O'Brien, uh, the two-man band today. Uh, feels kind of like a jazz band. You got the bass kind of going there. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for bringing us the music today. Um, well, uh, today is the day we get to talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this is probably, I think most of us would agree, Jesus' most well-known parable, maybe even the most well-known thing he said. Uh, it's, the Good Samaritan is so in our culture. You have Good Samaritan hospitals. You have Good Samaritan hospital corporations. You have Good Samaritan laws, right? Uh, law, and, uh, and people kind of know this. Um, I don't know how many of the people out in the culture who know of these things actually know the story. I, I would guess if I you know, did one of those Jay Leno walking around the street asking people questions bits, uh, how many would know the story or how many would just say, yeah, don't leave people by the side of the road or something like that, right? A good Samaritan helps somebody when their car's broken down. And that much is true. Uh, I, I, I don't think that that part of it, though, is, very, uh, is quite as deep. I don't think the story would have the same impact if that's all it was. If the whole moral of the story could simply be reduced to don't be a jerk and drive by people on the side of the road. Um, I think we all agree on that. I think our culture does a good job of that, actually. Uh, one time, I was out, I was borrowing my dad's Jeep. This was a few years ago, before I had a car that could drive much on dirt. I never tried taking the Grand Marquis out to Ironwood Monument. It would never have worked. Uh, so I took the Jeep out there. Uh, and you know, Ironwood, it's like way out there. It's like another 35 miles that way, right? So you go way out there, and I'd been driving around in the cactus. I'm coming back with my friend. It's night, it's, it's dark, and the tire blows out. And I'm on the dirt, out in the monument, no less than, what, two or three cars stopped to help me get that thing fixed. Um, so kudos to the people who live out on the edge of Ironwood Monument. Um, I learned all sorts of interesting things, like with Jeeps, a little piece of mechanical trivia. When you jack up a Jeep, you put the jack on the axle, not on the frame. We just kept turning and turning and turning that bugger, and then it kept stretching and stretching, so he's jammed blocks under it. You just put the jack on the axle. Thank, the, thank again for some wonderful, benevolent person out by Ironwood Monument uh, helping to show me that. But I don't think the whole point of the Good Samaritan parable can just be shrunk down to just that. I think in some ways that's our culture wanting to domesticate the message, right? to turn all ethics, to try to shrink all religious ethics to be a good person, whatever that means, right? Be a good person, that's all that matters. You know the refrain. But there's so much more to this parable, that, and it's so great, and part of what's interesting about this is it almost didn't happen. If, if you read through the Bible, you get the context on the story, what is it? It's an answer to a religious question, a very specific religious question, not just, Jesus, how can I be a good person? The question is, teacher, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this guy comes up to Jesus, says he's a lawyer. That's maybe not the best word to use. A lawyer at that time was also a religious lawyer. So they, he was an expert on God's laws, all 623 of God's laws. So this is a guy who's very religious, loves the Lord, takes his faith very seriously, and so he comes and he asks Jesus a basic, simple question. What do I have to do to get eternal life? But that question is actually kind of a loaded question. It kind of reminds me of, you know, when you try to bribe your kids to do something. Like I'd bribe my kids, I'd say, if you finish cleaning the bathroom, I'll give you a Dairy Queen. Because um, sometimes I just don't want to do it, right? And uh, so you try to bribe them to get the Dairy Queen. So they go out and they clean part of the bathroom and then you come in to inspect it and you're like, but you didn't do the shower. And then you get some sort of like Clinton-esque response of, you know, well, the shower isn't a part of the bathroom, you know, you know, because it's a shower, not a bathtub. And they're like, oh, really? But they're debating, you know, do I have to do that too? Do I also have to do that too? You know, because what's the point? You want to get the reward with as little investment as you can. You, you want to pay as small of a price to get that reward, right? Do I have to get around the base of the toilet too? Yes, you have to get the base of the toilet too. Do I have to get out the wire mesh and scrub the calcium ring? Well, usually I'll let, you get the, I'll let you go without that one. That one's pretty brutal. But that's the question. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's the minimum threshold I have to get over to get into heaven? What is the smallest amount of good deeds I can possibly do? What is the limit? What is that bar? And so, and Jesus says, well, what does the law say? And the guy says, okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul. And he's quoting one Old Testament verse. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. So he quotes a second one, kind of puts them together. And Jesus says, yeah, that's a good answer. Good answer. And then Jesus is about ready to leave it. And then the guy comes back and goes, but who's my neighbor? He wants to know what the definition of neighbor is. Why? So he can figure out who he doesn't have to love. Otherwise, why would you care? Why, why do you want to know who your neighbor is unless you want to know who isn't your neighbor? Right? There's a there's this great uh, meme I saw online. I couldn't find it in time to get it on the screen. It shows Jesus kind of in this kind of 60s schmaltzy uh, cartoon, and he's sitting on a hill, and he's looking out over all these people. And he says, love one another with no exceptions. And then you hear this voice, and then this little caption goes, what about Jim? Do I have to love Jim? And Jesus goes, yes. You must love Jim also. And then you hear, ha ha, losers. And Jesus goes, you're not helping, Jim. <laughs> right? Jim is a jerk. You still got to love Jim, right? That's where we get this parable. Who does God expect me to love and care for? And who can I get away with not caring for? And so the story goes, right? We know how the story goes. The guy's going along the road. 
gets beaten up by robbers, left for dead, stripped naked and left for dead. They really went all the way. And two people come along. One's a priest and one's a Levite. Now the priests, they would have been the ones who worked in Jerusalem, who did the animal sacrifices, very wealthy. The Levites were a little bit more local, but they also would have been experts in the law. They also would have understood everything very well. Uh, and so they both come along, and they both walk right by the guy. And then, of course, the Samaritan comes, and the Samaritan comes and bandages him up. And the scandal is that the Jewish people and the Samaritans did not get along at the time. And they had there were religious reasons, there were ethnic reasons, but it, it, was not, it, it was not good, let's say. But the Samaritan, who's supposed to be the bad guy, comes, bandages him up, and takes him to the hotel, right? And I've always wondered, why did the priests just walk on by? Why did they just let him go? What was their motivation for doing it? You know, some have said that maybe the priests were kind of worried about whether, uh, whether the guy was dead. And there's a purity, in the purity laws, if a priest touches a dead body, the priest is considered ritually unclean for 10 days. Uh, so the priest couldn't have done his work or offered animal sacrifices for 10 days after touching him. I'm not sure that's that big of a punishment. Although I know people these days would be like, wait, so if I touch a dead body, I get 10 days of paid house arrest? They'd be running to the morgue every ninth day to touch a body, right? But that was now the priest's work. I'm not sure that was quite the motivation of the reason. Did they worry if the guy was violent? You know, maybe he's, maybe this is really like a trap, right? Yeah, he may be there, but maybe they're waiting to ambush me. You know, his buddies are in the, in the ditch, maybe, but he was kind of naked and bloody. How dangerous could he have been? They had nowhere to hide a sword, for example. Were these two particular individuals just kind of cold-hearted individuals? You know, maybe those two, those particular priests were jerks. You know, their actions were cold, for sure. We don't know exactly the reason. It's interesting, but it's almost like to Jesus, that isn't the biggest thing that matters. That isn't the most important thing. You know, we'll never exactly know the reasons in the story, but what we do know is what happened. The guy was in need, and they just walked on by. You know, the law is clear that that's not what God wanted. What God would have wanted would be for them, risk the uncleanness and just be a decent human being. And there's a conviction in this story. When you think of it that way, it makes it a lot less warm and fuzzy, right? Because you could easily rewrite this story and put different people in those different positions. You know, when you drive down Oracle Road and you stop at the Circle K at, I don't know, what is it, Glen, Stone, Fort Lowell, something like that. Stone and Oracle don't merge, either way. And you're sitting there at the Circle K. I've been there. Right? I was there with my son, stopped by after, I think it was a soccer game, and we were pulled up there, and there's a young woman sitting right there on the other side of the door, laying out there, completely strung out, you know, and, you know, she's in her early 20s. She should have been doing college or something. Instead, she's just sitting there on a ragtag blanket by the Circle K on Oracle, strung out, the manager, or the guy working at the Circle K, I don't know if he's a manager, came out, and he goes, Tiffany, you know you can't stay here all day. He knew her by name. Well, I came in with my son. What did I do? I got my mega, ultra, hyper, duper, duper gulp, 
whatever you call it. And I got in my car and went away. I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm not a cop. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a drug rehab counselor. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a licensed interventionist from the city. What am I going to do? Put a random stranger in my car with my kid? Is that, and what am I, where am I going to take her that she couldn't already have gone? So I drove away with my big gulp. And I can hear the parable going, and a local parish pastor drove on by. You know, you think about these things and the, the different, you know, all the different stories of all the people around us that could need our help, and what do we do? You know, I was so, I was so struck by that story. I'm sure you've all heard it in the news, all those people in San Antonio that, got, that died getting locked in a trailer trying to come to the U.S. Was it 50, 60 people? Right? A lot of them kids. Little kids. Right? Their parents are just trying to get them away from the gang warfare in Guatemala and Honduras and these things, and they, pet, and they get them in there. And my understanding is the gang warfare is so bad in places in Central America where they'll come up to you and they'll just say, they'll just pull out the guns, walk right up and say, give me your kid. You got till Sunday. We're going to use them for drug, mule, whatever. Basically, they're going to take your kid like a slave. And you got like two days to decide. And so what do the parents do? They're like, well, not a great choice staying here. I don't want them getting roped in. Maybe I'll send them with Jimmy up north. It's not a great choice, but they don't have the time to go to the consulate, fill out the papers, wait for a response. There's no time, right? The bullets, the guns to your head. You got to make that decision. What do you do? Go. You got to go now, right? So they go, and then they die out in the desert. Do we try to help? I haven't been out in the desert. Or do, do, what, what do we do as Christians? Do we say it's their fault? Right? Well, you broke the law. You got what you deserve. Now, I'm not saying laws shouldn't have consequences, right? Break the law's consequences, but you can kill people in America and get 20 or 30 years, not the death penalty. Is the death penalty the appropriate punishment for a border crossing violation? Isn't that a little harsh? Shouldn't we as Christians who talk about Jesus' love be wanting people at least not to die? Shouldn't that be a simple threshold? I mean, how can you read the parable of the Good Samaritan and come to the conclusion that what Jesus wants is for people to be left to rot and die because they did something wrong? I can almost hear that Levite right now going, well, I gosh, why was he driving along that road like that? He knew it was dangerous. People get robbed on the road to Jericho all the time. You know, why didn't he go with other people? What was he doing out on that road alone? You know, there's no good reason for him to be out alone. I'll bet he was smuggling something. He got what he deserved. How do you know that? It doesn't say. Can you hear it? Okay, so let's say, let's say the guy on the road, let's say he was stupid. Let's say maybe even he was smuggling something. That happened a lot in Rome. Possibility, right? Is the Christian response that we leave him to die? Is the Christian response that we do a means test? Well, I know you're bloodied and by the road, but tell me about your recent lifestyle choices. If I approve of your lifestyle choices, I'll bandage you. Really? 
That's not what Jesus says. That's not how the parable goes. How, can you, how could you get a, a harsh answer from that parable? Of course not. We don't want anyone to rot and die, right? A Christian should never say, let them rot and die. Christians should never, ever not feel bad for human suffering or relish it or be cold-hearted about it. We are to always care, always feel bad, always sympathize, always be moved, always have that little pain of conscience when we hear of suffering, even if the person did make horrible choices and is irresponsible and is smuggling stuff. They're still human beings. If you love your neighbor, as Jesus says, you don't get to say, I will love this person, but here's my line, you don't get love. You made bad choices. Jesus doesn't, who is my neighbor? Anyone who needs you is your neighbor. You don't get to draw a line around your heart and say, I love everyone except them. It's the burden and the joy of being a follower of Jesus that he pushes us to have these kind of mushy, sympathetic hearts that feel pain even in the worst people. And it's a joy because I really believe that a cold-hearted life is not a very fun life to live. I, I can't imagine life is very meaningful and enjoyable to walk around with a cold, calloused heart. But when you have a warm heart that opens up, you feel others' pain, and there's pain that comes with that, of course. It makes life richer, but it doesn't make it easier. Because loving your neighbor means entering into the pain of others, and that, well, is painful. It's why we love this story, right? It's why I think secular society loves this story. Because it's so obvious that this is what being godly is. That there is no line where we get to say, I love you, except. God does not draw a line around love. And God asks us not to draw a line around who we love. Everyone is our neighbor. Amen.